we're going to be talking about the power of the word that God speaks into our life, but also the power of the words we speak into others' lives. Uh, there's a really amazing dynamic. I have my degree in psychology. Uh, I attended uh, McGill University in Montreal, and then I tore my ACLs on a basketball scholarship. And then I went and I finished my degree at UNLV, uh, and I have my degree in psychology. Uh, and so there's a really a significant amount of interesting and amazing uh, things that when you study the mind, when you study the person, you realize how significant our words are that we speak and how significant the words are that we receive from others. And we're going to study and we're really going to look into this based on the word and based on what this looks like, uh, what the power and our role is in receiving words and in giving words and how significant it is for us to realize that our words go so deep. They come from a deep place of our heart and they deliver to a deep place of others' hearts. So James 3, 7 through 12, we'll read this and we'll get into it. For every kind of beast and bird of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. How many of you guys have recognized this? <laughs> that your tongue is pretty awesome. <laughs> with it we bless our Lord and Father. We love you, God. And with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and curse. My brothers, these things ought not be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening, both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. So the Bible does a really great job of creating this symbolism that basically this, is that out of your mouth, you can observe and realize that some different things flow. Sometimes you realize that they're blessings. There's blessings to God, there's blessings to others, and not just us saying, hey, be blessed, uh, but also just us blessing people. Uh, oftentimes we, we, we miss that understanding that to bless somebody isn't to say, hey, be blessed, but it's actually to provide words that encourage, edify, exhort, uh, tear down principalities and powers in people's life. They actually cause a blessing. They don't just say the word be blessed, but they actually cause a blessing. And this is our reality is we see these two different places happening in our hearts and in our mouths. And there's a challenge here from James to reconcile these differences, to reconcile the difference. And a lot of what we'll be talking about today is how do we reconcile these differences? How do we shift from a place of speaking words that are clearly not in the nature of Jesus, in the edifying and, and blessed nature of Jesus? How do we reconcile those words to the nature of God? I oftentimes think that this is something that is missed when we read the Bible. Uh, oftentimes, I think we read the Bible, and when we read the Bible, we read it in the sense of, I want to do it because I know I'm supposed to. So there's an obligation, there's a certain amount of duty. I, I need to read the Bible, and I need to read it every single day. But you know these, these, these standards of daily reading, they didn't just come from nowhere or for no purpose. There was a purpose on why it's encouraged in, in Joshua to meditate on his law or his words day and night. 
And, I, and there's a reason that God speaks these things, these frequencies in our life is why should you do these every single day? Well, there's a purpose that you should do it every single day. Now, recently I took up climbing. I don't know if you guys know this, but <laughs> at first I started to climb and I started to train the way I trained basketball, which was every day. And then those who had been climbing a long time told me that's a bad idea, that your tendons get uh, stronger, slower than your muscles do. So if you climb every single day, there's a good chance that your muscles will progress in advance and that your tendons will be lagging behind and you'll get a tendon injury. So they spoke to me that, hey, there's a frequency that you should do this because of a purpose, because you can injure your tendons. So when God says meditate on my words day and night, there's a reason. And the reason is this, is that when we meditate on his words, the purpose that we are doing it for is so that his words become our words. This is our effort. And we'll recognize all throughout this time here that there's a significance of how we encounter his words and the way they change us so that we're speaking different words. If you're speaking words that are unlike Jesus, it means that you've lacked an encounter with his words in that area. That the reality of our life is that we speak like Jesus when we've been encountered by Jesus in that place. We become edifying and encouraging when we've experienced the Father's nature. Like when you've been fathered well, like when somebody's loved you like a really good father, and as a man, when that's happened to you, you approach young men differently. You approach young men, young women, you approach sons and daughters differently when you've encountered father's words. When you've been in the middle of a game or you've been in the middle of trying something and failing, and then a father, a good person, a good man or woman came up to you and they said words that were encouraging, comforting, and edifying so that you could get back up and continue to try again, when you have that experience with those kinds of words, it changes the way you approach somebody when they have failed. But if you have failed and you didn't receive encouraging words and you actually received the opposite, you experienced criticism and judgment and disqualification, then you've yet to experience the words that God has intended you to carry in relationship with people. And sometimes you'll notice that you'll carry the same words that have been spoken to you into others' lives. Whether they're positive or negative, whether they're building them up or destroying them. What are you doing? Why would you do that? What are you thinking? Honestly, just every time. This is what you do over and over again. Oftentimes, we don't realize the kind of impacts these words are having in our life. But when you study the, and understand that there is a reason why we speak the way we do. And we've got to understand that we speak out of the overflow of our heart. That we speak out of the overflow of how we have been formed and shaped by others' words and the words we've experienced by God or that we have yet to experience by God. So I'll say it like this, if you're looking for a roadmap for your transformation, understand that whatever you are looking to be formed in, in God's likeness, you've got to encounter his words in those places. Whatever it is that you think you lack, experience the plentiful, bountiful word of God in that place. If you think you lack love, identify his words of love in your life. 
If you think you lack courage, identify God's courage in the Bible. If you think you lack peace, identify what God says about peace. Because the peace of God surpasses all understanding, the Bible says. So when you hear those words of God and you know you lack peace, you know that you've got to stop trying to access peace through your mind. And you've got to access it through something different. The bottom line is, is whatever you're dealing with, whatever you're wrestling with, the word of God is trying, efforting to be delivered into your life so that you will lack nothing. And if you lack something, look for the words of God that are trying to author surplus in that place of lack. If you lack love, identify the words of God that are supplanting and uprooting hate and bitterness and unforgiveness. Identify those words and run to them. Love them. Meditate on them. Think on them over and over again and pray that they become your reality, that they change you. Whatever God's words are in your life, seek them, love them, embrace them, cherish them. I did some research, and, I, and there's a study I wanted to quote a few of the, of, the, of the pieces that were found from this study. It was a psychological study, and it said, according to a study, a single word has the power to influence the expression of genes that regulate physical and emotional stress. Positive words such as peace and love can alter the expression of genes, strengthening areas in your frontal lobes and promoting the brain's cognitive functioning. They propel the motivational centers of the brain into action and build resiliency. Conversely, hostile language can disrupt specific genes that play a part in the production of neurochemicals that protect us from stress. A single negative word can increase the activity in our amygdala, the fear center of the brain. This releases dozens of stress-producing hormones and neurotransmitters, which in turn interrupts our brain's functioning. Angry words send alarm messages through the brain, and they partially shut down the logic and reasoning centers located in the frontal lobes. Isn't that amazing? There's another quote I want to read on this, and then I've got two scriptures on it. And as our research has shown, the longer you concentrate on positive words, the more you begin to affect other areas of the brain. Functions in the parietal lobe start to change, which changes your perception of yourself and the people you interact with. A positive view of yourself will bias you. It will bias you towards seeing the good in others. Whereas a negative self-image will include you towards suspicion and doubt. Over the structure of your thalamus, and if there's anybody that's a real medical doctor or anything like that, and I butchered these words, please forgive me. Over the time, the structure of your thalamus will also change in response to your conscious words, thoughts, and feelings. And we believe that the thalamic changes affect the way in which you perceive reality. Okay, so there was a lot of brain words in there. Bottom line, positive words do a lot of good. Bad words do a lot of bad. And it doesn't just go to that one area. It actually begins to seep in and affect the entire person. So if I experienced coaching in a certain way that said you're the worst when you failed, I'm going to actually transpose that reality into the rest of my life. 
And the same thing happens for each one of us. So when people walk into this place, they're not walking in with just a simple understanding of God and that's it. They're walking into an understanding of who they think God is, who they think they are, and who they think others are. And most of the time, none of those perspectives are accurate. Most of the time, what we think we know about God changes drastically as we actually get to know God. What we think we know about ourselves drastically changes when we actually get to know God. And then what we think about others drastically changes when we actually get to know ourselves or get to love ourselves better. Isn't that interesting? The relationship with God and our words and being and encountering his words, they were never meant to just be a part of our functionality that we do for an hour and a half or two and a half hours if we attend a Bible study every single week. It was meant to be this interaction with our God that would shape us as a person and that would shape our approach and our interactions with others. This was the intended purpose of us interacting with God and us having relationship with God is that it would change us. It would change the words we carry. It would change why we carry them, why we say them, why we don't say them. Why we choose to refrain from words. Why we choose to cultivate words. Why we choose to study God's word. Because if you're only studying God's word because someone else told you you had to do it daily, there's a good chance you won't have the type of value for God's word that you ought to. Because really, duty doesn't put value on something. When I have a duty for something, it doesn't necessarily teach me the value of that thing. It just tells me I have to do it. So if you're speaking to God or if you're studying his words because of duty and obligation, it's a good chance it's not yet a relationship for you. Look, if I was married to my wife because it was simply my duty to be her husband, this would be a terrible marriage. She's up in kids right now, so she's not here because she doesn't like me. (laughs) Actually, the other week, because uh, not to bring everything about climbing, but I've got swollen fingers now. And when I climb, I can't wear my ring. uh, And then I can't fit it back on when I'm still climbing. So when my wife's not here and I'm not wearing my ring, she's like, do you think people are like concerned about us? (laughs) You've got no ring. I'm not in service. (laughs) They might think something's going on that you're upset with me or I'm upset with you. But she loves me. I love her. And you could check on that with her. I promise. She's upstairs. You could check with her afterwards. Fact check that. (laughs) But the reality is, is that if we have a relationship and we're only engaging in words with one another because of obligation and duty, it's not a very good relationship. It's just not a good relationship. And there's two scriptures I want to bring our attention to, Psalms 119.11. Because now that we realize the significance of these words, we've got to ask ourselves this question. Okay, well, how do I change my words? I know that there's some pragmatic folks in this place. There's some direct to the point type of people in here. Sometimes I'm that way. So the simple question is, all right, how do I change my words then? What is the biblical way to do this? We know the value on it. And we'll read in Psalms 119.11. Your word I have hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. Your word I have hidden in my heart. All right, there's two suggestions I'll build. And if you're a note taker and you're a linear thinker, I'm going to help you out here. Hide and write, dig and pour. Hide and write, dig and pour. 
These will be the two symbols that we'll draw out of now on how to change, hide and write, and dig and pour. All right, so the first one here is hide. What does hiding something in your heart actually do? Well, when I hide God's word in my heart, when I hide somebody's words in my heart, there's a certain protection over this word. There's a certain sanctity. There's a certain cherishedness I have over these words. The language of hiding something is almost like when somebody's got a treasure and their brothers and sisters, they know they don't want them to take it. Like Brixton will hide one of his toys that he doesn't want Brightly Presley or Monroe to take. He will hide it. And to him, that's him saying, I have value on this so much that I don't want someone else to rob it. I don't want someone else to trample on it, to take it, to bite its head off, to throw it in the trash, to throw it in the toilet, to do something that damages it or ruins it. The reality of the situation is, is that when we see, why would we hide something? We hide our money away from thieves. We put it in a bank. We tuck it away. We hide those things which we cherish from those things which could destroy it. So we hide something when we have value for it. When you look at the parable of the sower, you see some of the greatest dangers that came to these seeds, these words of God being sown in our heart, were actually external realities, either trampling on the seeds and destroying them, or weeds that would choke out the weeds or the seeds. So when you're hiding God's word in your heart, it's much like putting a seed in the ground. It's much like storing it in your heart, saying, I'm going to put this down really, really deep in the depths of my soul, in the depths of who I am. When I hide something, it's very much about digging down deep, digging down deep and putting that seed there and then putting something over it and saying, I'm coming back for this. I'm coming back for this. I'm going to visit it every day. I'm going to water it. You hide treasure. You make a map for it in your heart. When you hide God's word in your heart, and it causes you not to sin against God, it's saying that word which I love, the peace of God surpasses all understanding. I'm gonna hide that in my heart. And so when I don't have peace and I'm upset, I'm enraged, I'm terrified, I'm anxious, that thing that I've hidden in my heart, I'm gonna visit it and I'm gonna go, yes, this is good. This has been untouched and undestroyed by my fear. And so now I'm going to stay in this place of rootedness. And there's a fruitfulness that's come from this seed that I've hidden in my heart. What area in your life do you have contentiousness on that you haven't been able to be like Jesus in? Hide a counter word in your heart from God. If you lack, if you lack peace, hide a peace word in your heart. Dig down deep, store it in there. If you lack love, hide a love word in your heart. Store that thing up. Put, put value on it. Put more value on it than you have on your current set of words. The second scripture I want to share for you is in Hebrews 10, 16. It says, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. See, hide and write, hide and write. We saw the value of hiding Here's what I want to say. There's a, there's a scripture later on that we'll read, and I've already referenced before, and it talks about over the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. When you allow God to write something on your heart, here's, I think, what is a really beautiful thing to understand about this symbolism, is that it's incredibly personal, it's not surface, and it is actually totally in a vulnerable way about you 
and that's it. Oftentimes, I think we experience community, church community and church in a way that doesn't really give us a true picture into how God interacts with us. Like, for example, you can walk in this place and out of this place every week. You can feel some positive vibes. You can be like, hey, man, this is a cool church. I like those guys. I like Tim. I like his beard. I like Don. I like his humor. I like Sam. He speaks good deep words or something like that, you know? Uh, I'm just putting a compliment out there for myself. I don't know why I did that. (laughs) But you can think these things, right? And you can walk out going, man, that was really nice. That was cool. And all the time, you can never have any skin in the game. All the time, you could just never have actually brought your heart. You could have never actually encountered God in your heart. You could have this very positive mind encounter with God. You can go, hey, that's a positive place, man. I like it. It's good peeps. Good community. I like it. I like it. And, if, and it really, the church gathering doesn't require you to bring your heart. It doesn't require that you lay your heart on the line. It doesn't require that your, the words of God be written on your heart in order for you to come. The barrier of entry for this place, we don't stand at the front door and go, hey, are you going to let these words be written on your heart today? And if you say no, hey, sorry, you got to go. Go to another church that allows that. We won't stop you from coming in if you have no intention of actually allowing God's words to be written on your heart today. So when you come in and out of this place, you experience this really positive community, but it doesn't give a true frame of reference for how God interacts with us. And when God interacts with us, he's after our hearts. He's not after a surface dwelling reality. He's not, all, he's not after just kind of throwing seeds on the hard ground. He's actually really requiring that we open up our hearts, let the seeds into our hearts so he can write a different reality on who we are. Now, he's going to love us no matter what. He's going to love us no matter what. You could take those seeds and you could throw them back at God. He's going to love you. But if you truly, if you truly want to have his words change you, it'll look like you opening up your heart and allowing them to be planted in your heart. It'll look like you actually allowing him to write those words on your heart. The beauty of the symbolism of that heart language is to say it's really personal. It's really personal. It's going to deal with your deep-seated fears. It's going to deal with your deep-seated rejections. It's going to deal with your deep-seated anger. It's going to deal with your deep-seated whatever it may be. This is who God is in our life. He loves us dearly, but he writes his word on our hearts. He writes his word on our hearts. And that's so important for us to realize that if we don't put our heart in this relationship with God, we're missing an ingredient of God's word's intended purpose in our life. So I think at this point, I would really want to encourage you that if you recognize your heart hasn't been in this for some time, I want to encourage you to put your heart in it. Not with me, not to be an usher or a children's worker or a leader. I'm not asking you to put your heart into the church. I'm asking you to put your heart into your relationship with God. See, he says both things here, right? He says, your heart and your mind. Your heart and your mind. Your mind is so important. It's so, insig- it's so significant that you consciously say, yes. Yes, I agree with that word, God. I like that. But that is so different than putting your heart into it. 
Your mind can say yes, and your heart could just totally reserve itself. Have you ever seen somebody in a dating relationship where somebody, one of them, had their heart in it, and the other person did not? What do you think when you see that? Heading for disaster, right? One of those people is going to get really hurt, right? The reality is, is that your heart isn't in your relationship with God. If your heart isn't in your relationship with Jesus, you have one part of your being that was intended to be in relationship with God. And the other part that is not yet connected. And I want to encourage you, like deeply encourage you, even take a moment of pause in this time and say, look, God's inviting you not to just have a mental relationship with him where you know about him, but he's inviting you to know him in your heart and to be known by him in your heart. And there is a difference. There is a difference and it's a significant one. And if you need help or if you want to ask for help on how to engage your heart in this thing in a real way, then we would love to help. I promise you we would love to help. I'll, I'll connect you with people, with community, with, with relationships. You can see clearly what it looks like. We will engage you in this relationship with God to have his words hidden and written upon your heart. Because that is the effort of God. It's to establish a heart-to-heart with you. Okay, there's two symbols I really want to read from in this. It's in Luke 6, 43 through 49. When Jesus talks about things, he creates these pictures for us so that when we're trying to engage in deep and meaningful truth, we can actually have a picture or a visual of what this looks like. How many of you are visual learners? Visual learners in this place? Anybody an auditory learner? They can hear it and they can do it. When somebody gives me instructions by their mouth, they might as well just throw something at me. Honestly, I'm like, I don't even know what you just said. You said it so clearly. And if they start throwing in language like bear left and bear right, I don't even know what the difference between turn left is and bear left. Do you know the difference? Because before maps came around, they used to have all these different kinds of things. Like it wasn't just a hard right. There was also like kind of like a soft right. And you had this different way of describing it. Do you remember before maps? The way we would have to describe instructions and we'd have to give landmarks. Do you remember this? Hey, so when you're trying to get to the mountain church for the first time, look for these flags that say, love Jesus, love people. Look for it, right? And you can kind of say some things. Here's the address. You'll see it. You know you're almost there when you hit the chevron, right? So the same kind of thing happens, I find, with our relationship with God. You're like, hey, how do I know I have my heart in this thing? How do I know? And then Jesus begins to give you visual aid. So here's how you know. Here's a good example of what it's going to take to have your heart and your mind completely in this word journey with God. And so he tells these two parables, and we'll read the first one. For no good tree bears bad fruit. Okay. When you're reading the Bible, I highly encourage you to do this. Don't read like you're reading a textbook. When you read a textbook, one, you're doing it because you want to get a good grade. It's a performance. But two, you're doing it to learn information. But when you read the Bible, don't do it for information. Do it for transformation. And there's a real difference when you're reading something for information's sake versus transformation's sake. One engages only the mind. The other requires the heart. Okay, you guys tracking with this? Information, you could just have it in your mind. You're like, good, I know the Bible. Heart means I am that which is seen in the Bible. There's a real difference, and the second one is so hard. (laughs) It's so hard, it's not fun. 
And, <laughs> but it is joyful, right? So <laughs> verse 44 says, for each tree is known by its fruit. Okay. So let's read this again. 43 says, for no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. When you pause here and you read for transformation, you ask yourself this, do I produce bad fruit in my language or good fruit? Like seriously, just self-evaluation, just kind of wait on it, look at it, think about it. Do I produce this or do I produce that? Because once I identify the fruit, then I know where I'm rooted. Once you identify your fruit, you know exactly where you're rooted. And if you're producing bad fruit, you're, you're not rooted in Jesus. You might be confused about this, and I might be confused about this sometimes, because we know about Jesus a lot. But if you're producing bad fruit, it means that you in your heart are not rooted in Jesus. It means that you have yet to bring your heart to a place of transformation in Jesus. So if you know about him and yet you still produce and yield mostly bad fruit, then you know you have a heart problem. You guys tracking with me? You guys tracking with me? I do the same thing in my life. And when I realize I have a heart problem, I'm like, that's not good. Don't tell anybody at first. And then you want to hide it? Have you ever been in a place where you realize you're sinful and you just want to hide? That's what Adam and Eve did, right? They're like, oh, no, I'm naked. I need to put some clothes on. When you realize that you're in sin and you're naked, you're like, does everyone know I was naked? You know what I'm talking about? You're like, wait a second. And then you walk into church and you think people are judging you because you're like, I'm naked, I'm naked, I'm naked. And I know they see that I'm naked. It's like that show Naked and Afraid. You ever watched it? I've never watched it. I really haven't, but I've heard about it. That's what it feels like when you recognize that you're in sin. You're like, oh, I'm naked. Everyone is looking at me while I'm at church. But what you got to realize is everyone else is naked too. So when everyone's naked, you know what they're not thinking about? Your nakedness. They're thinking about the fact they're naked. And no one wants to be naked at church. That's half of my nightmares. <laughs> Haven't you ever had a dream where you couldn't find your pants at church? And your shirt for some reason wasn't long enough? This is half of my dreams. I promise you half of them are me naked at school with my second grade teacher who now works for my dad and I see on a weekly basis. And so I'm naked at Mrs. Tolentino's class and I can't find my pants and I'm 31 years old. So I don't know why I'm in second grade again. <laughs> so people are like, poor guy. <laughs> it's not really half of my dreams. That's an exaggeration. It's quarter, yeah, for sure. It's three quarters. <laughs> but the reality is, is that we're like, oh, no, I'm naked. I don't actually have a good relationship with God. I know a lot about him, but I have not had the courage to have my heart in this thing. I'm naked, and everybody can see how much of a, of a phony I am, how much of a phony I am. 
we could feel this shame and we could feel this thing where like people see me, I'm naked, I'm naked, I'm naked. And people, everyone around here can feel their nakedness and, they, and, and, and oftentimes we make the mistake of trying to feel better about our nakedness with others. Just bring your nakedness to God. If I had to give a really funny way to describe having your heart in this thing, it would be like, hey, when you can't find your pants, just go hang out with God. Seriously, when you can't find them and you're really embarrassed in community, it's not about the people around you. They're not judging you. And if they are, it's all good. We're all judged. We're all judged. We really are all judged. I I don't like it when people tell somebody, like, hey, no one's judging you. Well, that's not true. (laughs) Right? It's just not the case. (laughs) I'm not going to tell you a lie. Hey, no one judges you, brother. Everyone loves you, sister. Trust me, everyone at the mountain loves you. No, I do, but you might be being judged by the person that's way across the room on the other side. You might be judged by your ex. You might be judged by your current friends. You might be judged by your family. That's okay. We're all judged. We really are. So what we have here is we have this reality where we wrestle over what value are we going to put on words, Is it the words of those who judge and disqualify us? Or is it the words of God that sees our disqualification, still loves us, and seeks to heal us and empower us? See, what words are you going to allow to form and shape your behavior? Because if you allow the voice and the echo of the judge in your life to form and shape your behavior, you're going to allow yourself to be imprisoned, to accept yourself as having a guilty verdict. You're going to accept bondage. Because what else does a guilty verdict do in the courts? It sends you right to jail, gives you punishment, gives you pain, it gives you imprisonment. If you embrace the words of the judges around you with that guilty verdict, you are embracing prison. You're embracing bondage and you don't even realize it. It's so important that, one, you're not in denial about the fact that people around you are trying to give you a guilty verdict, but it's important that you don't go to jail or send yourself to jail as a result of their verdict. Because when God sees your guiltiness, he does something about it. He cleanses you. He forgives you. He redeems you. He reconciles you. See, if you're in denial about your guilty verdict, you don't even get to be in the place where you accept his redemption. Because you don't believe you need it yet. Don't skip that first truth. You're guilty. So am I. And then you get to be in the place where you accept his redemption. You're like, yay! Now, I've I've reached the state of consciousness where now I can embrace the forgiving, redeeming blood of Jesus in my life. And his blood is more powerful than the truth that the disqualifiers and judges in your life speak. This is when you have a greater truth that's presented in your life. It is true, you are guilty. But it is also true that he redeems you in your state of guiltiness. Isn't that fun? You guys like that? Well, I like that. I want to read on to this. And in 45, it says, The good person, out of the good treasure of his heart, out of the good treasure of his heart produces good. And the evil person, out of the evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. It's a heart issue. It's always a heart issue. When you're speaking and saying things, it's not just like, hey, man, I need help controlling my tongue. 
No, what you need help with and what I need help with is having our hearts redeemed, cleaned, purified, healed, transformed. That will change our words. If you cut someone out, it's not just that you lost control. It's that you had things in your heart that allowed you to cuss them out. You had things that flooded out and we're like, I got words for you. This is what they look like. (laughs) It's like a flex. (laughs) You ever have somebody flex on you (laughs) with their words? (laughs) It's just the reality of our life is that there's these times where we realize what's in our heart because of what we said. We're like, oh, man, that's unfortunate. I really thought I had reached perfection. I was sure I was close. (laughs) I was sure I was so close I had reached that place where no longer words would flood out of my mouth that were cursing, destroying, fighting, offensive and defensive. But now I realize there's things in my heart that I need to work with God on. I need to give God my heart again and again and again. I like it when I see a fruit that comes out of my mouth that I did not know that tree was even in my heart. And I like that, you know? You're like, what? when did I get a lemon tree? When did I get this? When did I get a bad tree in my heart? I thought it was a good tree. I really thought that was good. But now I just yelled at that person and told them they're worthless. So, <laughs> so why did that come out of my heart? I didn't even know that existed. I remember this story, and I think I've told you before. My neighbor, when I was living at 9155 Denver Sky Avenue, moved in. His name was Herbert, I think, or Hermit. No, 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 Herbert. Her, not Hermit. <laughs> Herbert. His name was Herbert, and his wife, I think, Wanda. Really, really sweet people, really great people. They thought this big green thing in their front yard was a beautiful bush. They would trim this bush. They would shape this bush. But they didn't know, like I knew, that that was actually a weed. (laughs) I knew it was a weed because I saw it come out way before they moved in and grew into this huge, beautiful, beautiful looking thing. But I knew it was a weed. They thought it was a beautiful bush. And one day I went up and told them, hey, that's not a bush. That's actually a weed. And Herbert, or Hermert, or whatever, Herbert, (laughs) he was so so sweet. He's like, oh, boy, I didn't know that. I I thought that was growing fast. (laughs) I was like, yeah, man, that's a weed. (laughs) He's like, oh, no. (laughs) And so then finally one day he hired this company, brought him in, and they tore that thing out. And I really, I thought about it, and I still think about it now. There's places in our hearts where we're like, what a beautiful bush. You see that beautiful bush over there? That's a beautiful bush. That's God's bush in my life. And all of a sudden, one day, somebody comes along and says to us, hey, man, that's been there so long. You think it's a God bush. You think it's a God word. But in fact, that's actually a weed in your life. And here's the problem. I could let you have that weed because you think it's a bush, essentially living in deception. But the problem is, biblically, weeds choke out the word of God. They steal water. They steal resource, they steal space, they steal energy, they steal landscape in your heart. And when you've got a weed that you think is a bush, it's important that we come alongside one another and say, that's a weed, let's pull the thing together. Because if you ever pulled a weed that that is that big, it's a devil. 
It's just the worst. It's so strong, and it's so, the tensile strength is ridiculous. You try and snap a branch off, you can't even do it, and you try and pull it out, you throw your back out, and you gotta like hire a company to come in or something, or you gotta dig down really deep. And this brings us to the next symbolism here. In verse 46 of Luke 6, it says, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I tell you? Everyone who comes to me and hears my word and does them, I will show you what he is like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when a flood arose, the stream broke against that house and could not shake it because it had been well built. Verse 49 says, but the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. When the stream broke against it, immediately it fell. And the ruin of that house was great. Look, if you're being ruined by storms, there's a chance that you lack a really good foundation of the word. There's a really good chance that when your storms come and your house falls, It's time for you to learn to dig deep with God, get to the heart state, go to the root of that big giant weed you thought was a bush. Pull that thing up with God. See God plant his word in your life and see that thing grow and watch it be really fragile at the beginning too. When I first buy plants from Home Depot or Lowe's, Usually Lowe's, because I got a My Lowe's card, scan the thing, and the receipt's stored on my My Lowe's card. There's an irrelevant fact for you. (laughs) But when I plant the thing, I've realized this, is that the first two or three months are incredibly significant for that plant's life. I got to water that thing. I got to feed it. I got to make sure it's good. I got to make sure my dog Watson doesn't pee on it. There's some things I really got to do to make sure that plant makes it because it's at its beginnings. It's at its tiny little spot. It's fragile. But year or two go by, it's hit a few seasons, it's grown. That thing is so strong. Watson can go by and pee on it, and it doesn't kill the whole thing. Just a tiny branch of it turns brown. And all of a sudden, it's able to remain. It's able to stay. Its roots have gone deeper. It's reached to a deeper place, and its surface is, it's not, its growth is not just surface, it's actually rooted. So here's what I want to say for you as we're getting into this place here, is that your heart is about rooted places in your life. And you see these rooted places come. There's no shortcut. There's no microwave to seeing your words change. It's going to take a heart work. It's going to take a hard work. 